Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and also welcome to another of our Great Sea Fights series. Today, we have for you part one of a special episode on the Battle of Jutland, because on this day in history in 1916, the German and British battle fleets met in the largest naval battle of the First World War, and one of the largest in history, involving 250 ships and 100,000 men. Parts two and three will follow in the coming days and will introduce you to a host of original eyewitness sources to the battle with episodes dedicated to the German view and the English view. Without further ado, here is our first episode on the Battle of Jutland. In 1916, two years into the First World War, the war on the surface took a decisive turn. The German army had suffered terrible casualties at Verdun, and their navy was now led by Admiral Reinhard Scheer. Scheer needed to justify to the German nation the navy's existence, and he devised two operations against British shipping off the coast of Denmark and against the English east coast, both designed to provoke the Royal Navy into battle. The Admiralty, however, had been reading his wireless signals, and on the night of the 30th of May, Commander of the Fleet Admiral John Jellicoe was informed by the Admiralty that something significant was afoot, and he sailed in secret into the North Sea. The British fleet was divided into two squadrons. A squadron of fast battle cruisers was led by Vice Admiral Sir David Beatty, Beatty had been promoted to captain in November 1900, having proved himself a skilled and brave leader. He was only 29, and in 1900 the average age for promotion to that post was 42. Thirteen years later, he was given command of the battle cruiser fleet, consisting of fast armoured ships designed to contain the Germans' own cruiser squadron and to locate and prevent the escape of the main German high seas fleet. His job was to bring about the decisive fleet action that the Admiralty craved. 
Beatty's youthful vigour and offensive spirit was ideally matched to his role, which required aggression, calculation and initiative from him and all of his officers. The man in charge of the main British fleet, the Grand Fleet, was Sir John Jellicoe, and he couldn't have been more different. He had survived the sinking of HMS Victoria in 1893 in a collision, and he certainly shared Beatty's experience of combat. They had, in fact, both been wounded in the same action during service in China during the Boxer Rebellion, for which Jellicoe carried a bullet in his lung for the rest of his life. In terms of appearance, lifestyle and command style and character, however, they were worlds apart. Jellicoe was steady, a bit dull and an effective manager. He was not strikingly handsome like Beatty and one of the most enduring descriptions of him noted his big nose and yellow complexion. He was nevertheless loved by the fleet. He had an astonishing memory, particularly for names. He was kind, thoughtful, fiercely loyal and completely unpretentious. Unlike Beatty, however, who worked carefully to encourage initiative and spontaneity among his subordinates, Jellicoe was a man of orders and formulae. Jellicoe headed into the North Sea and organised to rendezvous with Beatty, both of them completely unaware that the entire German high seas fleet was at sea. Beatty was the first into action as he stumbled into an advanced squadron of German battlecruisers under the command of Franz Hipper. They engaged, but the British ships were silhouetted against the western sky, and Beatty had withheld his fire for too long. While the British shells landed beyond the Germans, theirs found their mark time and again. Two of Beatty's cruisers, the Indefatigable and the Queen Mary, blew up in front of him with a loss of 1,283 men. There seems to be something wrong with our bloody ships today, Beatty said to his flag captain. Indeed there was. Explosions travelled from the turrets down into the ship's magazines because the safety interlocks had been removed to increase their rate of fire. Eyewitnesses said that the Queen Mary was blown in two as her magazine exploded and that her guns sizzled as they sank into the North Sea. The Queen Mary was the crack gunnery ship of the Royal Navy and her destruction was the greatest German naval success of the war. After the disastrous initial contact, Beatty turned towards Jellicoe to lead the Germans into a trap. The Germans followed, and when the two great fleets met, this time it was the British ships who had the advantage of the light. The Germans were easily visible while the British fleet was lost in the gloom. The Grand Fleet hammered the leading ships of the Germans mercilessly and did so again when they turned to retreat. But the battle was chaotic and fought at high speed, and the weather poor, with neither side able to get a firm grip on the position and formation of the other fleet. There was more confusion in the following hours and more missed opportunities in which the German fleet could have been brought to action once more. It is generally accepted that there were three opportunities, each of them spurned, in which Jellicoe might have inflicted a crushing defeat on the Germans. Three times wrote Winston Churchill on being told the news, is a lot. Inevitably, both sides claimed victory, the Germans because they had sunk more ships than the British, 15 to the British 9, and the British because many more German warships were significantly damaged and would have to spend months in port. Only six of Shear's entire high seas fleet remained unscathed. More importantly, both sides knew there would not be another fleet battle. The Germans simply could not risk it. The naval challenge would now focus entirely on submarine warfare. 
To find out more, and in particular to find out a bit more from a German perspective, I spoke to Dr. Stefan Huck. Stefan has enjoyed a fascinating career. After some military training, he became interested in history, particularly military history, and since 2002 has been head of the excellent German Naval Museum in Wilhelmshaven, which you should all go to as soon as you are able. He knows an enormous amount about the battle, and his perspective is both refreshing and fascinating. Here is Stefan. Stefan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Yes, Sam, it's a pleasure for me uh, to be here in your podcast. Um, so give me an overview of the course of the battle. What actually happened at Jutland? That's a very difficult question to start with, but I'm going to give it to you. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Yes, uh, the Battle of Jutland um, lasted uh, nearly 12 hours. It began in the 31st of May in uh, 1916 when the German high, high seas fleet left Wilhelmshaven and later on in the early course of the afternoon met uh, the battlecruisers of uh, Admiral Beatty. Um, Four um, great uh, parts of the fleet were engaged in the battle. Um, reconnaissance forces on each side uh, led on the British side by Admiral Beatty and on the German side by Admiral Hipper. And afterwards, the battle fleet on the British side led by Admiral Jellicoe and on the German side by Admiral Scheer. First of all, in the early afternoon, the battle cruisers, the reconnaissance forces, met when the Germans ran to the north and the British ones came from Rothschild to south or to southeast. Um, immediately when they met, uh, Hipper's forces turned around, ran to the south, were followed by Beatty's forces. Um, unfortunately, um, the British forces had uh, to suffer heavy losses. Two new battle cruisers, the Queen Mary and the, in, and the Indefatigable, um, were uh, sunk, and uh, the HMS line was heavily um, damaged. Um, Beatty quoted, um, there must be something wrong with our bloody ships. Um, shortly afterwards, um, Beatty became aware that um, Hipper tried to guide him to the oncoming uh, German battle fleet, which came from the south, from Wilhelmshaven. The two fleets turned around, uh, ran to the north, that is the second phase of the, of the battle, tried to follow each other. Um, during that time, the... British battle fleet um, crossed the line over the T of the German battle fleet so that um, they um, that they faced the, the from, from the south coming German battle fleet um, with a whole broadside um, Scheer's fleet turned around um, drew away from, from, the, from the British fleet. Then, surprisingly, Cher decided to turn another time around so that um, 
both battle fleets uh, engaged um, for engaged for a second time, um, and in the last phase of the of the fleet, um, the Germans did a third turnaround, went to the south um, in the um, falling of the night, um, followed by the British forces. Um, Scheer led his torpedo boats to attack uh, the, the British forces so that Jellicoe decided to no, no longer to, to follow the German forces and uh, gave him the opportunity to um, go back to Wilhelmshaven, which they reached in the, um, on the 1st of June. Um, yes, that's in, in short words the battle with uh, four... In, in four phases, um, the run to the south with the um, battle between the um, reconnaissance forces, the run to the north, uh, the battle fleets, uh, fleet action, and then uh, the night action. In the end, um, the British had lost uh, 14 ships, the German had lost 11 ships, nearly 7,000 British sailors lost their lives, uh, and uh, uh, some about 3,000 German sailors uh, lost their lives despite, despite of the fact um, that uh, the British um, had uh, nearly one and a half of the number of the German uh, ships. So in total, um, nearly 250 ships were involved in the battle, 150 on the British side and 100 on the German side. Do you know what? I think um, what happened at the Battle of Jutland is the most difficult question I've ever asked anyone on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, did, you did very, very well indeed. It's such a complex battle, these numerous phases um, and how it's a kind of a constant process of hide and seek, as we would say in England and playing cat and mouse. They're chasing each other around the North Sea, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it, uh, they they did. Uh, it's uh, it was a little bit uh, like a chase, and um, um, what has to be underlined is that um, none of the parties was aware on that day that the whole um, fleet of the enemy was uh, at sea. So uh, of course everybody was aware that the enemy was at sea, but not that he was with his with the total of his number at sea, so it was a kind of uh, surprise for both sides. Once the battle had begun, one thing that both sides were very clear about that they were trying to do is to achieve a decisive victory. Um, what role did the concept of the decisive battle play in German naval operational and strategic thinking before the First World War? Yes, I think uh, you can say that uh, the concept of the decisive battle um, was the core of German operational and strategic thinking. Um, this depended on several factors. Uh, on the one hand, it, it depended with, on, on general military thinking in the 19th century. So the concept of decisive battle began also in the Napoleonic Wars, um, and uh, um, was uh, written down in the, in the writings of Clausewitz and so on. Um, on the second hand, um, in naval affairs, 
it depended also very much on the um, writings on, on Erfatheya Mahan um, with his thinking about uh, geostrategic uh, geo power and, and sea power and what is necessary for sea power, naval superiority. And um, he also strengthened uh, the opportunity uh, to, to um, get to a decisive battle. It also depends also on the concept of Darwinism, Darwinism something like uh, superiority of races and and so on and at least uh, or at last um, it depended on um, a kind of lesson learned from fo former wars uh, especially Admiral von Tirpitz who designed the German fleet um, was very interested in, in, in the younger wars and his lessons learned from the Battle of the Yalu Maus or the Battle of Tsushima was that, it's, that it's, the, the, the concept of decisive battle was necessary to, to get in war to an end and, and was the main task for a navy. And maybe um, just, uh, sorry, Sam, just one last word. Um, also, the, the, the myth of Trafalgar plays a role, even in, in German Navy at Sinclair. We must keep in mind the German Navy was not very old at the Battle of uh, Jutland, nearly 50 years, and they were formally trained and influenced by the British Navy. So also the myth of Trafalgar, which, inf which influenced also the British Navy, was relevant in the German Navy. Sorry for that. No, no, it, it's absolutely fascinating um, that the, the, the sort of relative youth of the German Navy. Um, as opposed to that, in terms of time that has passed, it's interesting that, I'm not sure many people realise this, but the Battle of Jutland happens in 1916, right? Yeah. And the First World War began in 1914. So why why had it taken nearly two years for these two um, fleets to really face each other properly? It depended um, with um, the unfinished status of the German high seas fleet. Um, it was obvious for um, the, the German naval command that uh, the concept of um, uh, um, decisive battle needed a certain strength of the German fleet which wasn't uh, realized at the beginning of the, of the war. So it was an unfinished fleet uh, on the one hand, uh, so they didn't have the number to um, to threaten the the, the um, Royal Navy, and on the other hand, um, the concept of the decisive battle always depended on the idea um, of uh, or on the assume of uh, a narrow blockade of German waters and a decisive battle uh, at the at the front door of of, of the German harbors and. Um, as we know, due to um, the analysis of the threat of torpedoes and mines and so on, the um, Royal Navy also decided before the war to leave the concept of the narrow blockade and to uh, um, follow the concept of a far blockade. And Germany didn't have the strength to, um, yes, to, to engage the, the Royal Navy. And then um, they did uh, some difficult uh, experiences at the beginning of the war with the Battle of Heligoland and, and uh, some losses 
immediately after the war. And this led to a hesitation of, of the naval command and the emperor um, and to seek a, a, a safe opportunity for, for, for the decisive. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Battle. Yeah. Um, it's, I think, so important with any, any naval battle is hearing uh, ideas and perspectives of what happened from both sides. Um, and particularly refreshing being a British historian speaking to uh, some Germans who will have a German perspective. Uh, from the German point of view, what were the most important uh, kind of positions or manoeuvres or moments in the course of the battle? Yes, I, I think the first uh, very important experience and maneuver was uh, during the um, uh, the battle uh, or during the run of the, to the south, the battle between the two um, battle cruiser fleets, and uh, Hipper's success to sunk um, two modern battle cruisers shortly one after another, the um, Indefatigable and the HMS Queen Mary, and also to, to damage the, the HMS Lion. Um, this uh, underlined, on the one hand, uh, the, the very well-trained status of training of the, of the um, crews of, of Hipper's forces, but uh, we must be serious that uh, it depended also on a, on a big piece of luck as uh, Beatty's forces didn't have the chance to, to use their longer range, um, firing range, and, and uh, opened fire at a range where they also were endangered by the Germans and that uh, the visibility and the weather conditions were favorable for the Germans as they fired against the, the light of the sinking sun and saw Brit Beatty's battlecruisers very clearly, very clear-shaped at the horizon while they themselves were a little bit covered in the mist and in the smoke um, on, on, the, uh, on the other side. Um, so it depended also on, on a good training status, but also on a big piece of luck. Um, the second um, uh, frequently mentioned maneuver were the three turnarounds of um, Admiral Scheer's battle fleet in the battle fleet in the fleet action. 
um, as they also underlined uh, the, the good um, exercise state of the, the fleet, that they were able to manage this complicated maneuver three times uh, without any collisions and so on. Um, but the main question was uh, why Cher decided to do his second turnaround, um, um, why he decided to seek and uh, to, to force the Jellicoe's forces for a second time while he already had the chance to escape with his smaller fleet. And uh, it's still, there's still room for interpretations and so on. And it depended on the one hand with Scher's intention to, to keep the initiative um, uh, and uh, yes, uh, to, to um, I don't know a better word, to keep the in initiative. And um, on the other hand, um, it uh, depended on his um, intention to um, help the small, the light cruiser HMS, to help the light cruiser SMS Wiesbaden, which was um, heavily damaged at the beginning of the fleet action. And um, yes, uh, swam between those two firing battle fleets without uh, any chance to escape. Um, as we all know, um, this uh, wasn't successful. The, the Wiesbaden sank um, nearly with total uh, loss. Uh, only one Stoker survived. Um, uh, maybe the Wiesbaden um, caused the, the most prominent loss of the whole battle. It was the German poet um, Gorch Fock, Johann Kienau, who died uh, aboard of this ship. Um, his core was later on um, found at the south of Sweden and buried on um, uh, the small island Stensholmen. Uh, yes, the third um, remarkable thing was uh, the action of the torpedo boats, um, which um, helped the fleet uh, to, um, to escape to the safe harbor of Wilhelmshaven. Yeah, um, I certainly agree the um, Shears turnaround is, is so dramatic and it makes you wonder exactly what was in his mind and, and why he, he did that again. Um, as with all naval battles, we have immediate results and also long-term results. Jutland's a particularly tricky one, isn't it? Because both sides claimed victory. Um, what, in your, uh, your perspective, were the immediate results of the battle? Well, first of all, uh, it's, it's easy to, to count the numbers. And from this point of view, of course, uh, the Germans were more successful than the British. Um, they started uh, with a lower number of ships, uh, 100 ships on the German side, 150 on the British side. Um, they caused uh, 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 smaller losses. Uh, 11 uh, ships got lost on, on the German side, 14 on the British side. They managed uh, more hits of heavy artillery, I think 120 to 100. So just if you look at this battle in numbers, it seems to be a German success. And this was 
what was celebrated when uh, the German fleet um, reached safe harbor in Wilhelmshaven. They also had um, the, 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 they reached the, the harbor earlier than the British fleet reached their home ports. So therefore, they had a, um, they were in favorite with with uh, with their PR campaign, and they were able to claim victory before the British were able to claim victory. But um, a second view immediately after the battle showed that the battle had changed didn't have changed anything in the um, difficult uh, strategic situation of, of the German fleet. The, the British uh, blockade was still at work. The fleet um, was able to operate. Um, we must keep in mind it lasted until October 1916 to repair all the damaged uh, German ships. So even if they didn't have such a big number of losses. They had heavily damaged ships like the SMS Seidlitz and uh, the, the Grand Fleet was able to operate four hours after they returned um, to, to, to their home base in Scapa Flow. So um, this is the, the other side. Uh, if you don't look at the numbers, if you look on the strategic situation, nothing had changed and I think it was the New York Times that found a, a good um, headline when they said that the German had rattled at the prison, uh, prison door, but they weren't able to, to break out of, of jail. And this is a little bit what's happened at Jutland. Um, so it was um, only on first sight a victory. And... Um, this was also clear for, for the German naval command. Um, in July 1916, uh, Admiral Scheer wrote a report to the emperor and uh, clearly pointed out that the concept of the battle fleet wasn't able to break the British blo blockade. The only way he saw to uh, end the, or to do something against the British blockade was uh, to um, go back to the unrestricted U-boat uh, warfare with all the consequences. We know that in 1917 the USA entered the war and, and uh, this decision was one of the major decisions that led into the end of the war uh, on this side and on the other side. Um, so we can say the Battle of Jutland was uh, the peak but also the end of uh, the concept of, of the battle fleets. And um, afterwards, the fleet existed only as a fleet in being to support uh, the unrestricted U-boat warfare. And this had another major consequence. It led into a lot of frustration into the German fleet. There, this began also earlier before the the battle of Jutland there were rumors in the fleet that they weren't able to do their part in the war and um, when they became reduced to a fleet in being this led with other factors of course uh, inner politics factors in Germany like the splitting of the SPD party and so on 
in last consequence to, to mutiny and revolution which ended uh, which also played a major role in the end of the war yeah uh, it's fascinating how it's the, the sort of the tentacles of Jutland reached out and began to affect things in unexpected ways. And many naval battles are like that, which I think is one of the reasons that they're so fascinating. And what about a very long view of the battle? How did the you know the perception and our understanding of the battle change over time? Well, uh, first of all, and in, in the in the years between the two world wars, I think. Um, the Battle of Jutland was remembered in the German Navy as an unfinished battle, something that had to be completed in the next war. And you can see this in several memorials that were erected in Germany to remember the Battle of Jutland. For example, at the Naval Academy in flensburg murwick um, where um, the new naval officers were um, told to take revenge and to fulfill um, uh, the ear of, of their uh, ancestor from the First World War. Um, this became also clear at the inauguration of the Lebo Memorial, which was also inaugurated with the, with the words um, Wieder Wagen, um, wage again. Um, um, so they all called uh, the Naval Officer Corps to, to complete the Battle of Jutland. And this became the, the major um, point of view between the two world wars. And on the other hand, um, um, Jutland was always remembered as a victory and uh, as a symbol for the strength of the Navy, which claimed themselves despite of revolution and mutiny, as um, undefeated um, and as glorious and, and so on. And, and so the battle was always remembered uh, each year on the 31st of May. They flew the old flag on the warships. This all ended also with the end of the Second World War. And afterwards, remembrance of, of the um, Battle of Jablin became... Um, subsequently um, less important. So you can see it into, until the early 50s or, or until the 50s Skagaraktach uh, Jutland Day was celebrated here in Wilhelmshaven. This ended in the 1960s. You can see it also at the fate of one memorial that's now located in our museum. It's the barrel or one of the barrels of SMS Seidlitz, um, which uh, shows the trace of a British shell. This barrel was um, displaced before the Wilhelmshaven Garrison Church for nearly half a century until the year of 68 and remembered um, the Battle of Jutland. In the year 68, um, it was removed to another place, uh, to Wilhelmshaven, and it doesn't seem any longer um, opportune to, to remember on, on, on this um, battle. And uh, 30 years later, in the year of uh, 98, when our museum opened, this barrel was removed from that place um, in front of the Gorch Fock House 
into the museum. So it shows um, Jutland changed from um, uh, lieu de memoir um, to of, of public remembrance to a historic episode to something for museums and historical historians. Yeah, fascinating the way that it changed. Um, and it, it's inspired me to come to your wonderful museum and to have a look myself. I promise you I'll do that as soon as I can travel. I would glad to welcome you here. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. And thank you so much for talking to me today. I really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure for me. Have a good time and see you here in Wilhelmshaven, hopefully soon. So there we go, the Battle of Jutland for you. Parts two and three will be coming your way very soon, so stay in touch that you don't miss them. Also remember that previous episodes in this great sea fight series are there to be listened to. Um, they've covered the Battle of the River Plate of December 1939. That's the first naval battle of the Second World War, which led to the scuttling of the German pocket battleship, the Admiral Graf Spee. And the Battle of Cape St. Vincent of 1797, in which Horatio Nelson first shot to fame by boarding not one but two of the largest enemy ships, one from the other, in what he described as his patent bridge for boarding first rates. And just last week, there's so many of them now, the Battle of Tsushima of 1905, fought between the Russians and the Japanese in huge steel battleships, one of the most decisive and fascinating naval battles in history. Do please follow the Society for Nautical Research on social media. You can find the SNR at Twitter and on Facebook and the Mariner's Mirror podcast has its own YouTube channel with some fascinating animations on it and also its own Instagram page. Best of all though, please check us out online at snr.org.uk and please, if you're not a member already, do join the Society and your annual subscription modest as it is, will go towards publishing the most important important maritime history and towards preserving our maritime past. Mm -hmm.